0: chapter 2 part 1 of the lifted veil this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by kirsten weaver the lifted veil by george eliot chapter 2 part 1 before the autumn was at an end and while the brown leaves still stood thick on the beeches in our park my brother and bertha were engaged to each other and it was understood that their marriage was to take place early, in the next spring. In spite of the certainty I had felt from that moment on the bridge at Prague that Bertha would one day be my wife, my constitutional timidity and distrust had continued to benumb me, and the words in which I had sometimes premeditated a confession of my love had died away unuttered. THE SAME CONFLICT HAD GONE ON WITHIN ME AS BEFORE, THE LONGING FOR AN INSURANCE OF LOVE FROM BERTHA'S LIPS, THE DREAD LEST A WORD OF CONTEMPT AND DENIAL SHOULD FALL UPON ME LIKE A CORROSIVE ACID. WHAT WAS THE CONVICTION OF A DISTANT NECESSITY TO ME? I TREMBLED UNDER A PRESENT GLANCE. I HUNGERED AFTER A PRESENT JOY. I WAS CLOGGED AND CHILLED BY A PRESENT FEAR. And so the days passed on. I witnessed Bertha's engagement, and heard her marriage discussed, as if I were under a conscious nightmare, knowing it was a dream that would vanish, but feeling stifled under the grasp of hard, clutching fingers. When I was not in Bertha's presence—and I was with her very often, for she continued to treat me with a playful patronage that wakened no jealousy in my brother— I spent my time chiefly in wandering, in strolling, or taking long rides while the daylight lasted, and then shutting myself up with my unread books, for books had lost the power of chaining my attention. My self-consciousness was heightened to that pitch of intensity in which our own emotions take the form of a drama which urges itself imperatively on our contemplation and we begin to weep less under the sense of our suffering than at the thought of it. I felt a sort of pitying anguish over the pathos of my own lot, the lot of a being finely organized for pain, but with hardly any fibers that responded to pleasure, to whom the idea of future evil robbed the present of its joy, and for whom the idea of future good did not still the uneasiness of a present yearning or a present dread i went dumbly through that stage of the poet's suffering in which he feels the delicious pang of utterance and makes an image of his sorrows i was left entirely without remonstrance concerning this dreamy wayward life i knew my father's thoughts about me that lad will never be good for anything in life He may waste his years in an insignificant way on the income that falls to him. I shall not trouble myself about a career for him. One mild morning, in the beginning of November, it happened that I was standing outside the portico, patting lazy old Caesar, a Newfoundland almost blind with age, the only dog that ever took any notice of me, for the very dogs shunned me, and fawned on the happier people about me. When the groom brought up my brother's horse, which was to carry him to the hunt, and my brother himself appeared at the door, florid, broad-chested, and self-complacent, feeling what a good-natured fellow he was, not to behave insolently to us all, on the strength of his great advantages. "'Latimer, old boy,' he said to me, in a tone of compassionate cordiality, "'what a pity it is you don't have a run with the hounds now and then.' The finest thing in the world for low spirits. Low spirits, I thought bitterly, as he rode away, that is the sort of phrase with which coarse, narrow natures like yours think to describe experience of which you can know no more than your horse knows. It is to such as you that the good of this world falls. Ready dulness, healthy selfishness, good tempered conceit, these are the keys to happiness. THE QUICK THOUGHT CAME THAT MY SELFISHNESS WAS EVEN STRONGER THAN HIS. IT WAS ONLY A SUFFERING SELFISHNESS INSTEAD OF AN ENJOYING ONE. BUT THEN AGAIN MY EXASPERATING INSIGHT INTO ALFRED'S SELF-COMPLACENT SOUL, HIS FREEDOM FROM ALL DOUBTS AND FEARS, THE UNSATISFIED YEARNINGS, THE EXQUISITE TORTURES OF SENSITIVENESS THAT HAD MADE THE WEB OF MY LIFE SEEMED TO ABSOLVE ME FROM ALL BONDS TOWARD HIM this man needed no pity no love those fine influences would have been felt as little by him as the delicate white mist is felt by the rock it caresses There was no evil in store for him if he was not to marry bertha it would be because he had found a lot pleasanter to himself mr fillmore's house lay not more than half a mile beyond our gates and whenever I knew my brother was gone in another direction, I went there for the chance of finding Bertha at home. Later on in the day I walked thither. By a rare accident she was alone, and we walked out in the grounds together, for she seldom went on foot beyond the trimly swept gravel walks. I remember what a beautiful sylph she looked to me, as the low November sun shone on her blonde hair, and she tripped along, teasing me with her usual light banter, to which I listened half fondly, half moodily. It was all the sign Bertha's mysterious inner self ever made to me. To-day, perhaps, the moodiness predominated, for I had not yet shaken off the access of jealous hate which my brother had raised in me by his parting patronage. Suddenly I interrupted and startled her by saying almost fiercely— bertha how can you love alfred she looked at me with surprise for a moment but soon her light smile came again and she answered sarcastically why do you suppose i love him how can you ask that bertha what your wisdom thinks i must love the man i'm going to marry the most unpleasant thing in the world i should quarrel with him i should be jealous of him Our ménage would be conducted in a very ill-bred manner. A little quiet contempt contributes greatly to the elegance of life. Bertha, that is not your real feeling. Why do you delight in trying to deceive me by inventing such cynical speeches? I need never take the trouble of invention in order to deceive you, my small tasso. That was the mocking name she usually gave me. The easiest way to deceive a poet is to tell him the truth." She was testing the validity of her epigram in a daring way, and for a moment the shadow of my vision, the Bertha whose soul was no secret to me, passed between me and the radiant girl, the playful sylph, whose feelings were a fascinating mystery. I suppose I must have shuddered or betrayed in some other way my momentary chill of horror. "'Tasso,' she said, seizing my wrist, and peeping round into my face, "'are you really beginning to discern what a heartless girl I am? "'Why, you are not half the poet I thought you were. "'You are actually capable of believing the truth about me.'" The shadow passed from between us, and was no longer the object nearest to me. The girl whose light fingers grasped me, whose elfish, charming face looked into mine, who, I thought, was betraying an interest in my feelings that she would not have directly avowed, this warm, breathing presence again possessed my senses and imagination like a returning siren melody which had been overpowered for an instant by the roar of threatening waves. It was a moment as delicious to me as the waking up to a consciousness of youth after a dream of middle age. I forgot everything but my passion. "'and said with swimming eyes, "'Bertha, shall you love me when we are first married? "'I wouldn't mind if you really loved me, only for a little while.' "'Her look of astonishment, as she loosed my hand and started away from me, "'recalled me to a sense of my strange, my criminal indiscretion. "'Forgive me,' I said hurriedly, as soon as I could speak again. "'I did not know what I was saying.' ah tasso's mad fit has come on i see she answered quietly for she had recovered herself sooner than i had let him go home and keep his head cool i must go in for the sun is setting i left her full of indignation against myself i had let slip words which if she reflected on them might rouse in her a suspicion of my abnormal mental condition a suspicion which of all things i dreaded And besides that, I was ashamed of the apparent baseness I had committed in uttering them to my brother's betrothed wife. I wandered home slowly, entering our park through a private gate instead of by the lodges. As I approached the house, I saw a man dashing off at full speed from the stable-yard across the park. Had any accident happened at home? no perhaps it was only one of my father's peremptory business errands that required this headlong haste nevertheless i quickened my pace without any distinct motive and was soon at the house i will not dwell on the scene i found there my brother was dead had been pitched from his horse and killed on the spot by a concussion of the brain i went up to the room where he lay and where my father was seated beside him with a look of rigid despair. I had shunned my father more than any one since our return home, for the radical antipathy between our natures made my insight into his inner self a constant affliction to me. But now, as I went up to him, and stood beside him in sad silence, I felt the presence of a new element that blended us as we had never been blent before. My father had been one of the most successful men in the money-getting world. He had no sentimental sufferings, no illness. The heaviest trouble that had befallen him was the death of his first wife. But he married my mother soon after, and I remember he seemed exactly the same, to my keen childish observation, the week after her death as before. But now, at last, a sorrow had come the sorrow of old age, which suffers the more from the crushing of its pride and its hopes, in proportion as the pride and hope are narrow and prosaic. His son was to have married soon, would probably have stood for the borough at the next election. That son's existence was the best motive that could be alleged for making new purchases of land every year to round off the estate." it is a dreary thing to live on doing the same things year after year without knowing why we do them perhaps the tragedy of disappointed youth and passion is less piteous than the tragedy of disappointed age and worldliness as i saw into the desolation of my father's heart i felt a movement of deep pity towards him which was the beginning of a new affection an affection that grew and strengthened In spite of the strange bitterness with which he regarded me in the first month or two after my brother's death, if it had not been for the softening influence of my compassion for him, the first deep compassion I had ever felt, I should have been stung by the perception that my father transferred the inheritance of an eldest son to me with a mortified sense that fate had compelled him to the unwelcome course of caring for me as an important being. It was only in spite of himself that he began to think of me with anxious regard there is hardly any neglected child for whom death has made vacant a more favored place who will not understand what i mean gradually however my new deference to his wishes the effect of that patience which was born of my pity for him "'one upon his affection, and he began to please himself "'with the endeavour to make me fill any brother's place as fully "'as my feebler personality would admit. "'I saw that the prospect which by and by presented itself "'of my becoming Bertha's husband was welcome to him, "'and he even contemplated, in my case, "'what he had not intended in my brother's, "'that his son and daughter-in-law should make one household with him.' My softened feelings towards my father made this the happiest time I had known since childhood, these last months in which I retained the delicious illusion of loving Bertha, of longing and doubting and hoping that she might love me. She behaved with a certain new consciousness and distance towards me after my brother's death, and I, too, was under a double constraint— that of delicacy towards my brother's memory, and of anxiety as to the impression my abrupt words had left on her mind. But the additional screen, this mutual reserve erected between us, only brought me more completely under her power, no matter how empty the aditum, so that the veil be thick enough." So absolute is our soul's need of something hidden and uncertain for the maintenance of that doubt and hope and effort which are the breath of its life, that if the whole future were laid bare to us beyond to-day, the interest of all mankind would be bent on the hours that lie between. We should pet after the uncertainties of our one morning and our one afternoon, we should rush fiercely to the exchange for our last possibility of speculation, of success, of disappointment. We should have a glut of political prophets foretelling a crisis or a non crisis within the only twenty-four hours left open to prophecy. Conceive the condition of the human mind if all propositions whatsoever were self-evident except one which was to become self-evident at the close of a summer's day, but in the meantime might be the subject of question, of hypothesis, of debate. Art and philosophy, literature and science would fasten like bees on that one proposition, which had the honey of probability in it, and be the more eager because their enjoyment would end with sunset." our impulses our spiritual activities no more adjust themselves to the idea of their future nullity than the beating of our heart or the irritability of our muscles bertha the slim fair-haired girl whose present thoughts and emotions were an enigma to me amidst the fatiguing obviousness of other minds around me was as absorbing to me as a single unknown to-day as a single, hypothetic proposition, to remain problematic till sunset. And all the cramped, hemmed-in belief and disbelief, trust and distrust, of my nature welled out in this one narrow channel. And she made me believe that she loved me. Without ever quitting her tone of badinage and playful superiority, she intoxicated me with the sense that I was necessary to her. That she was never at ease unless i was near her submitting to her playful tyranny it costs a woman so little effort to beset us in this way a half-repressed word a moment's unexpected silence even an easy fit of petulance on our account will serve us as hashish for a long while out of the subtlest web of scarcely perceptible signs she set me weaving the fancy that she had always unconsciously loved me better than alfred but that with the ignorant fluttered sensibility of a young girl she had been imposed on by the charm that lay for her in the distinction of being admired and chosen by a man who made so brilliant a figure in the world as my brother she satirized herself in a very graceful way for her vanity and ambition What was it to me that I had the light of my wretched provision on the fact that now it was I who possessed, at least all but the personal part, of my brother's advantages? Our sweet illusions are, half of them, conscious illusions, like effects of color that we know to be made up of tinsel, broken glass, and rags. We were married eighteen months after Alfred's death, one cold, clear morning in April, when there came hail and sunshine both together, and Bertha, in her white silk and pale green leaves, and the pale hues of her hair and face, looked like the spirit of the morning. My father was happier than he had thought of being again. My marriage, he felt sure, would complete the desirable modification of my character, and make me practical and worldly enough to take my place in society among sane men. For he delighted in Bertha's tact and acuteness, and felt sure she would be mistress of me, and make me what she chose. I was only twenty-one, and madly in love with her. Poor father! He kept that hope a little while, after our first year of marriage, and it was not quite extinct when paralysis came— and saved him from utter disappointment. I shall hurry through the rest of my story, not dwelling so much as I have hitherto done on my inward experience. When people are well known to each other, they talk rather of what befalls them externally, leaving their feelings and sentiments to be inferred. We lived in a round of visits for some time after our return home giving splendid dinner-parties, and making a sensation in our neighborhood by the new luster of our equipage, for my father had reserved this display of his increased wealth for the period of his son's marriage, and we gave our acquaintances liberal opportunity for remarking that it was a pity I made so poor a figure as an heir and a bridegroom. The nervous fatigue of this existence, the insincerities and platitudes which I had to live through twice over, through my inner and outward sense, would have been maddening to me, if I had not had that sort of intoxicated callousness which came from the delights of a first passion. A bride and bridegroom, surrounded by all the appliances of wealth, hurried through the day by the whirl of society filling their solitary moments with hastily-snatched caresses, are prepared for their future life together as the novice is prepared for the cloister, by experiencing its utmost contrast. Through all these crowded, excited months, Bertha's inward self remained shrouded from me, and I still read her thoughts only through the language of her lips and demeanour. I had still the human interest of wondering whether what I did and said pleased her, of longing to hear a word of affection, of giving a delicious exaggeration of meaning to her smile. But I was conscious of a growing difference in her manner towards me, sometimes strong enough to be called haughty coldness, cutting and chilling me as the hail had done that came across the sunshine on our marriage morning sometimes only perceptible in the dexterous avoidance of a tete-a-tete walk or dinner to which i had been looking forward i had been deeply pained by this had even felt a sort of crushing of the heart from the sense that my brief day of happiness was near its setting but still i remained dependent on bertha eager for the last rays of a bliss that would soon be gone for ever hoping and watching For some afterglow more beautiful from the impending night. I remember—how should I not remember—the time when that dependence and hope utterly left me, when the sadness I had felt in Bertha's growing estrangement became a joy that I looked back upon with longing, as a man might look back on the last pains in a paralyzed limb. It was just after the close of my father's last illness which had necessarily withdrawn us from society and thrown us more on each other. It was the evening of father's death. On that evening the veil which had shrouded Bertha's soul from me had made me find in her alone among my fellow beings the blessed possibility of mystery and doubt and expectation was first withdrawn. Perhaps it was the first day since the beginning of my passion for her in which that passion was completely neutralized by the presence of an absorbing feeling of another kind. I had been watching by my father's deathbed. I had been witnessing the last fitful yearning glance his soul had cast back on the spent inheritance of life, the last faint consciousness of love he had gathered from the pressure of my hand. What are all our personal loves when we have been sharing in that supreme agony? In the first moments, when we come away from the presence of death, every other relation to the living is merged to our feeling in the general relation of common nature and a common destiny. In that state of mind, I joined Bertha in her private sitting-room. She was seated in a leaning posture, on a settee, with her back to the door the great, rich coils of her pale blonde hair surmounting her small neck, visible above the back of the settee. I remember, as I closed the door behind me, a cold tremulousness seized me, and a vague sense of being hated and lonely, vague and strong, like a presentiment. I know how I looked at that moment, for I saw myself in Bertha's thought, as she lifted her cutting, grey eyes and looked at me, a miserable ghost-seer, surrounded by phantoms in the noonday, trembling under a breeze when the leaves were still, without the appetite for the common objects of human desires, but pining after the moonbeams. We were front to front with each other, and judged each other. The terrible moment of complete illumination had come to me. AND I SAW THAT THE DARKNESS HAD HIDDEN NO LANDSCAPE FROM ME, BUT ONLY A BLANK, PROSAIC WALL. FROM THAT EVENING FORTH, THROUGH THE SICKENING YEARS WHICH FOLLOWED, I SAW ALL ROUND THE NARROW ROOM OF THIS WOMAN'S SOUL, SAW PETTY ARTIFICE AND MERE NEGATION WHERE I HAD DELIGHTED TO BELIEVE IN COY SENSIBILITIES AND IN WIT, AT WAR WITH LATENT FEELING saw the light floating vanities of the girl defining themselves into systematic coquetry the scheming selfishness of the woman saw repulsion and antipathy hardened into cruel hatred giving pain only for the sake of wreaking itself for bertha too after her kind felt the bitterness of disillusion she had believed that my wild poet's passion for her would make me her slave and that, being her slave, I should execute her will in all things. With the essential shallowness of a negative, unimaginative nature, she was unable to conceive the fact that sensibilities were anything else than weaknesses. She had thought my weaknesses would put me in her power, and she found them unmanageable forces. Our positions were reversed. Before marriage, she had completely mastered my imagination, for she was a secret to me, and I created the unknown thought before which I trembled as if it were hers. But now that her soul was laid open to me, now that I was compelled to share the privacy of her motives, to follow all the petty devices that preceded her words and acts, she found herself powerless with me, except to produce in me the chill shudder of repulsion powerless because I could be acted on by no lever within her reach. I was dead to worldly ambitions, to social vanities, to all the incentives within the compass of her narrow imagination, and I lived under influences utterly invisible to her. She was really pitiable, to have such a husband, and so all the world thought. A graceful, brilliant woman like Bertha, who smiled on morning collars, made a figure in ballrooms, and was capable of that light repartee which, from such a woman, is accepted as wit, was secure of carrying off all sympathy from a husband who was sickly, abstracted, and, as some suspected, crack-brained. Even the servants in our house gave her the balance of their regard and pity for there were no audible quarrels between us. Our alienation, our repulsion from each other, lay within the silence of our own hearts. And if the mistress went out a great deal, and seemed to dislike the master's society, was it not natural, poor thing? The master was odd. I was kind and just to my dependents, but I excited in them a shrinking, half-contemptuous pity. FOR THIS CLASS OF MEN AND WOMEN ARE BUT SLIGHTLY DETERMINED, IN THEIR ESTIMATE OF OTHERS, BY GENERAL CONSIDERATIONS, OR EVEN EXPERIENCE, OF CHARACTER. THEY JUDGE OF PERSONS AS THEY JUDGE OF COINS, AND VALUE THOSE WHO PASS CURRENT AT A HIGH RATE. AFTER A TIME, I INTERFERED SO LITTLE WITH BERTHA'S HABITS THAT IT MIGHT SEEM WONDERFUL HOW HER HATRED TOWARDS ME COULD GROW SO INTENSE AND ACTIVE AS IT DID, but she had begun to suspect, by some involuntary betrayal of mine, that there was an abnormal power of penetration in me, that, fitfully at least, I was strangely cognizant of her thoughts and intentions, and she began to be haunted by a terror of me which alternated, every now and then, with defiance. She meditated continually how the incubus could be shaken off her life, "'how she could be freed from this hateful bond "'to a being whom she at once despised as an imbecile "'and dreaded as an inquisitor. "'For a long while she lived in the hope "'that my evident wretchedness "'would drive me to the commission of suicide. "'But suicide was not in my nature. "'I was too completely swayed by the sense "'that I was in the grasp of unknown forces "'to believe in my power of self-release.' Towards my own destiny I had become entirely passive, for my one ardent desire had spent itself, and impulse no longer predominated over knowledge. For this reason I never thought of taking any steps towards a complete separation which would have made our alienation evident to the world. Why should I rush for help to a new course, when I was only suffering from the consequences of a deed which had been the act of my intensest will. That would have been the logic of one who had desires to gratify, and I had no desires. But Bertha and I lived more and more aloof from each other. The rich find it easy to live married and apart that course of our life which i have indicated in a few sentences filled the space of years so much misery so slow and hideous a growth of hatred and sin may be compressed into a sentence and men judge of each other's lives through this summary medium they epitomize the experience of their fellow mortal and pronounce judgment on him in neat syntax and feel themselves wise and virtuous, conquerors over the temptations they define in well selected predicates. Seven years of wretchedness glide glibly over the lips of the man who has never counted them out in moments of chill disappointment, of head and heart throbbings, of dread and vain wrestling, of remorse and despair. We learn words by rote but not their meaning. That must be paid for with our life-blood, and printed in the subtle fibers of our nerves. But I will hasten to finish my story. Brevity is justified at once to those who readily understand, and to those who will never understand. End of chapter 2, part 1. Recording by Kirsten Weber.